you know, keeping up with what's going on in the world can sometimes feel like it's more trouble than it's worth. The news can be scary and make you want to scream, or there's just simply too much out there to keep up with. But that's why there's the Assorted Goods Podcast. It's the amateur's guide to world events, where each episode we take a closer look at a collection of stories that slip through the cracks of the regular news cycle. So find Assorted Goods on whatever podcast app you use and join me in my attempts to learn a little more about the world, one story at a time. Hi, everybody. Chris Roberts here of the I Saw It on Linden Street podcast. Just wanted to stop and take a moment to tell you about a podcast that I've been listening to and I think you should as well. It would be the Horror Movie Survival Guide. It's a weekly podcast where two unlikely gorehounds and longtime chums, one of them a hardcore horror fan with a notebook to prove it, and the other finally coming out of the creepy horror fandom closet, get together to watch and talk about horror films from a survival point of view. They ask the question, how can they end up being the final girl? Join Julia and Terry as they take a deep dive into everything from OG horror to newly released films, but preferably the classics on VHS. They'll talk about obscure details that no one else notices, spin off into alternate casting universes, crush pretty hard on some dodgy fellows and creepy uncles, and they'll arm you, the listener, with the necessary knowledge to become the final girl. So go on, get out there, give them a listen. You can find them on Apple, on Spotify, on Google Play, anywhere that podcasts are available. And hey, when you get there, tell them Chris sent you. I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you for joining us. Now, this isn't your standard film review. This is rather more of a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection. Some background thrown in on the actors, some stories on the director, and perhaps if I'm doing my job, you'll get a half-amusing tale out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of the plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review. This week, we are continuing this month's theme, A Simple Carpenter. That's our selection of some of the best films of director John Carpenter's career. This week, we are covering the 1981 action-adventure, Escape from New York. Join us! Call me Snake. Now, on one hand, you would think that someone is desperately trying to compensate for something. And perhaps in taking the role and uttering that now iconic line, Kurt Russell was trying to do just that. Now, before anybody goes off all half-cocked and thinks that I'm insulting the man, I would like to categorically say, no, I am not. I really actually enjoy Kurt Russell. I'm a fan of his. I enjoy the films he's made, and for the most part, there aren't many things he's in that I would say, this isn't very good. Rather, I'm referring to Russell's drive to be taken seriously and transition into being a full-on adult actor, capable of being taken serious by audiences who grew up watching him be a golden child actor in Walt Disney films. I used to not understand the bemusement my father would have when he would see Kurt Russell in a film in the 80s and kind of smile. But now, I completely get it. March 17, 1951, Russell came from an entertainment family. His father, Bing Russell, was a minor league ball player turned steady character actor, and his mother was a dancer, Louise Crone. 
Along with his sisters, the Russell children were all encouraged to hit the stage as well as be athletes, all of them growing up with a love for baseball. At the age of 12, young Kurt made his debut in the 1963 Elvis film, It Happened at the World's Fair, which is somewhat ironic as one of his first big adult roles, and the gig that would put him in touch with director John Carpenter, would be playing Elvis in a 1979 made-for-TV movie. That same year would see Russell star as the titular character in the ABC Western series The Travels of Jamie McFeeters, which focused on a wagon train heading west with a huge ensemble cast and some amazing character actors. Running for two seasons, Charles Bronson ended up joining that ensemble a few episodes in and sticking around, and Russell got to work with the likes of George Kennedy, Martin Landau, David McCollum, Burgess Meredith, Slim Pickens, Doodles Weaver, Keenan Wynn, and of course, the great Lee Van Cleef. While the series itself was cancelled, a full-length feature film ended up being made with both Russell and Bronson reprising their respected parts in 1965's The Guns of Diablo. Russell was a hot kid actor of the day, made so because Walt Disney was always on the lookout for the next Tommy Kirk or Kevin Corcoran or even Haley Mills to just get a hold of a kid and have them crank out a bunch of live-action family fare. He was put under a 10-year contract in 1966 with Walt Disney, and he would spend the next decade making films for them, including some actual classics like 1969's The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes, 71's The Barefoot Executive, 73's Super Dad with Bob Crane of Hogan's Heroes, and 75's The Strongest Man in the World. Russell has been said to be part of an urban legend that has been making its way around Hollywood for quite some time. You see, here, here's the story. The last words spoken by Walt Disney when he died was the name Kurt Russell. That's a half-truth. See, undoubtedly, it was possible that Russell himself was one of several things on old Walt's mind when he finally did kick the bucket. And it's true, Kurt Russell's name, misspelled, was on a numbered list for future TV projects that Walt was thinking about at his desk, but it also included the name Ron Miller, and which Ron Miller we don't know, if it's the actor, the songwriter, or the athlete, we're not sure. Russell's name appears next, and then a cryptic, perhaps project name called Way Down Cellar, and then, fourth, a notation of CIA with the name Mobley next to it. Yeah, your guess is as good as mine on that one. But still, it makes folks wonder, what exactly was Disney cooking up when he finally did, you know, leave us? During this time, Kurt was having a pretty normal, albeit for a kid raised in an acting family, childhood. He played a lot of Little League, as did his sisters. He attended high school at Thousand Oaks, and when he reached 18, he actually served a stint in the California Air Guard, which I'm thinking was probably to shelter him from the draft, but still, normal. In the early 70s, it was looking like Russell would actually be leaving his acting career behind to focus on having a real ball-playing career. He got a spot on the Rainbow Benz, which was part of a minor league affiliate feeder team that ended up moving talent into the California Angels, and he played second base. He moved around a bit, playing briefly with the Walla Walla Islanders, and then even made it to double A ball for a short time. In 1973, he hooked up with the Texas League, playing for the then-titled El Paso Sun Kings, a team which has switched names and affiliations several times since then. But professional ball playing just wasn't going to be in the cards for Russell. A torn rotator cuff sidelined those dreams and put him back on track to have an acting career. He ended up marrying actress Season Hubley of Hardcore and Vice Squad fame in 1979. He then tried to transition into more adult roles and ditched that squeaky Disney kid image. He appeared as a slippery but genial car salesman in Robert Zemeckis' 1980 black comedy Used Cars, which was a minor hit, but it was met with mixed reviews, and it will absolutely be a future episode on this show. So, when meeting with Carpenter on the set of Elvis in 1979, Russell had made a connection that would really help him shed this squeaky clean image. Here's the problem. 
1981, Embassy Pictures, which was backing Carpenter's next project, Escape from New York, didn't want him. Carpenter had penned his first draft of Escape from New York in 1976 with film school chum and the actor who had played Michael Myers on the set of the first 1978 Halloween, Nick Castle. But it was deemed too dark, too violent. He later toned down the draft, and no studio was really interested in making it. But then, Carpenter ends up having hits with Halloween and The Fog, and suddenly, wouldn't you know it, studios are coming around asking him if he has anything else up his sleeve. Carpenter dusts off Escape from New York, and he gets it basically greenlit immediately. When he rolls out the concept of having Russell as the star, he gets a lot of pushback. No, we want Charles Bronson to star in this. It's rough, it's gritty, and he's coming off Death Wish. And you gotta understand, Death Wish had yet to be turned into a running motif by canon films where they would just crank out sequel after sequel after sequel. This, this is when Death Wish was actually considered serious action-slash-art-slash-social commentary. If they couldn't get Bronson, Embassy had also suggested an up-and-coming star who really seemed to be catching on lately. A young guy by the name of Tommy Lee Jones. And besides... John, he was in that movie that you just wrote, The Eyes of Laura Mars. Carpenter shot both of them down, justifying the decision that he didn't want to deal with an actor who was big enough that could come and try to control what was going on on the set, which he felt Jones would do. And besides, especially in Bronson's case, he's too old. This is a role for a young man. So sticking to his guns and holding on to Russell, Carpenter was able to get the studio to relent. Russell, already in decent shape, put on some more muscle to capture the mean, lean look of ex-Special Forces soldier turned thieving mercenary for hire, Snake Plissken. Russell based his delivery of the lines as an imitation of Clint Eastwood, and it was his own idea to give the character that signature eye patch, one that Carpenter did approve of, but the idea is one that the actor would actually come to regret as it really messed with his depth perception when he was on set. And sometimes, you know, when you're making a movie where you need to run, jump, fight, steer a car, it, it becomes kind of imperative to be able to see to your fullest ability. Uh, particularly, Russell had a problem in the staged fight between himself and wrestler Ox Baker in the film. Russell was starting getting worried that he was having trouble seeing, and Baker was truly swinging a very real spiked bat at him during those fight scenes. But hey, let's talk about the rest of this cast, because it's loaded with greats. So you got veteran character actor Lee Van Cleef coming into the role of Warden Bob Hawk. He's a man who's attempting to recruit Pliskin for this suicide mission. Originally, there was more of a backstory as Hawk was this jaded veteran, same as Pliskin, but clearly have both taken these different paths. Hawk has become this cog in the system, whereas Pliskin has been rebelling every chance he can get along the way and refuses to join in. Competent character, actor, and horror film great Tom Atkins returns for yet another Carpenter film, this time playing his role as Hawk's right-hand man, Remy. The role of Cabby was specifically written by Castle to be played by Ernest Borgnine, and it, he is a delight here, just as this slightly addled but uncompromisingly big band listening cab driver who insists on helping Snake in trying to escape. Borgnine has done high art, he's also done trash, but it's these middling roles, just where he gets to have fun with projects that always get me. For the role of Brain, Carpenter wanted to get the great Warren Oates to come on board, but the actor had actually taken ill. See, unbeknownst to Oates, he was suffering from the effects of COPD, and would very sadly die the next year of a massive heart attack only at the age of 53. But it was Oates who said, I'm not doing so hot, but hey, there's this guy I worked with a lot, Harry Dean Stanton, he should be perfect for this, you should actually offer him this role. So Carpenter, understanding, you know, talent, can recommend talent, took him up on that. And he got Harry Dean Stanton to come in, and Stanton, being Stanton, does a fantastic job here, playing the man who runs things behind the scenes, but is still worried about his own head. 
The part of Maggie was played by Carpenter's then-wife, Adrienne Barbeau, and it was tailor-made for her. And to her credit, she does a really good job here as a no-nonsense but actually sympathetic partner to Brain. It was as if a memo went out that said include more wives because Susan Hubley actually was given a small role as a woman who meets Snake and tries to convince him to take her along, at least that is before she meets with a gruesome end. Not to be outdone, the great Donald Plessence is here, with all of his British properness, and oddly he plays the endangered president of the United States, John Harker. And he's a man who makes looking sweaty and scared an art form here. This is his second outing on a Carpenter film, and we can only measure his greatness you know, against that of the film's villain, because the man holding him prisoner in this film, the Duke of New York himself, is played by none other with creepily calm persistence. Isaac Hayes. He's fantastic. He's very detached, and he's horrifically menacing. And it's just wonderful having him play against Pleasance. He doesn't have to yell or make grandiose threats, and that makes him all the scarier. Let's talk about filming. To save money on sets, they needed to find a place that they could shoot that would act as a stand-in for actual New York City. And they lucked out as East St. Louis, Illinois, had experienced horrific urban blight, partially brought on by a horrific fire that had ravaged entire neighborhoods, a tragedy that left the crew with perfect, perfect opportunity to use multiple city blocks of burnt buildings and rubble. It would do nicely for what they needed. Carpenter ended up working with the city to actually get them to have a blackout of 10 full blocks to recreate a Manhattan bereft of electricity. The film takes place over the course of a single long night, so shooting would start around 8 or 9 p.m. and then would wrap at about 6 a.m. Principal photography started August of 1980 and ran for a grueling four months of night shoots, wrapping in November. Carpenter did get special access in the day to shoot briefly on Liberty Island in actual New York to get images of the Statue of Liberty for background placement. But the rest of the shots of the police encampment outside of the prison island were all done with either Hollywood sound stages and the high walls built around the city bridges. Those were filmed at Sepulveda Dam in Sherman Oaks, California. Low-budget practical genius of this film cannot be overstated. Carpenter was lean on a budget of $6 million to get this film completed, so he tapped into some of Roger Corman's New World Pictures talent to help get the job done to keep things on track. And while it is absolutely dated, the practically done miniature plane and building effects still hold up to this day, as do the glass matte paintings done by this little guy, you maybe not heard of him, James Cameron. Yeah, he's a nobody. For the Gulffire Glider cockpit heads-up display scene, Carpenter wanted some sort of slick computer animation to be, you know, rendered, but the effects crew just couldn't get that level of graphics rendered, you know, it was just too costly. So they went a different route. The on-screen text, as seen from Snake's point of view as he's piloting, is indeed computer lettering. But all the rendered wireframe models, and I'm using renders in air quotes, the one that looked like they were created to be vector graphics, the likes you would find in an old Atari game like Tempest, it's all low-rent photo trickery. The special effects crew took that miniature model city that they already had, and what they did was they covered all of the protruding building corner edges with thin strips of reflective tape. They then turned all the lights off and illuminated the model with black lights and slowly just panned the camera over the model as if it was, from the glider's point of view, flying into the city. This makes all of those lines look like digital displays of the buildings below. It was fast, it was cheap, and even for the day, it looked like a million bucks. But, okay, man oh man, you've listened to me prattle on this long now. How about we get to what you came for? Here is a trailer. New York, 1997. 
The entire city is a walled maximum security prison. The bridges are mined. The rivers are patrolled. And the United States police force has everything under control. voiceover provided by an uncredited Jamie Lee Curtis, we are given the backstory as to how the island of Manhattan was converted into a city-sized prison in the future year of 1988, after a 400% increase in crime rocked the country. Surrounded by 50-foot walls with mined bridges and manned guard towers, being sent to the island is a life term. In the current future year of 1997, the United States and NATO members have been battling the forces of the Soviet Union across Europe for years, and while the USSR seems to be on the ropes, they are threatening to unleash nuclear weapons on the encroaching NATO forces. While traveling to a peace summit, Air Force One is hijacked by domestic terrorists who intend to stop President John Harker from attending the plane crashes into the island, but the president and his precious briefcase safely eject in an escape pod, surviving the fiery crash that kills all the rest on board. Security forces are dispatched from Liberty Island to retrieve the lost leader, but when they land at the site of the pod, they are met with a single emissary, Romeo, as played by Frank Doubleday. He is serving the current reigning boss of the prison, the Duke of New York. He has already seized the president, and they are holding him for ransom, offering proof that they have him by way of a severed finger with the president's ring. If any further rescue attempts are made, they will kill him. So, until they're ready for contact, they have to go back to the mainland with the demands, and they are the ones that now control the fate of those peace talks. Back on Liberty Island, ex-war hero and newly minted prisoner Snake Pliskin is being transferred in for processing to New York. Pliskin finds himself being made an offer personally by the prison warden Bob Hawk, in which he will agree to go to New York by way of stealth glider, retrieve the president, and get him back unscathed. And if he does all that, he'll be given a full pardon and a new shot at life. S.D. Pliskin, American, Lieutenant, Special Forces Unit, Black Light. Two Purple Hearts, Leningrad and Siberia. Youngest men to be decorated by the President. He robbed the Federal Reserve Depository. Life sentence, New York Maximum Security Penitentiary. I'm ready to kick your ass out of the world.
Police Commissioner. Bob Hawk. Special Forces Unit Texas Thunder. We heard of you too, please. Why are we talking? I have a deal for you. You received full pardon for every criminal action you committed in the United States. It was an accident. About an hour ago, a small jet went down inside New York City. The president was on board. President of what? That's not funny, please. You go in, find the president, bring him out in 24 hours, and you're a free man. 24 hours, huh? I'm making you an offer. Bullshit. Straight, just like I said. I'll think about it. No time. Give me an answer. Get a new president. We're still at war, Pliskin. You need him alive. I don't give a fuck about your war. Or your president. Is that your answer? Thinking about it. Think hard. You flew the Gulf Fire over Leningrad. You know how to get in quiet. You're all I've got. I guess I go in one way or the other. Doesn't mean shit to me. Give me the paper. When you come out? Before. I told you I wasn't a fool. Call me Snake. 22 hours, 59 minutes, 57 seconds. We talked about 24. In 22 hours, the Hartford Summit meeting will be over. China and the Soviet Union will go back home. Now, the president was on his way to this summit when his plane went down. He has a briefcase attached to his wrist. The tape recording inside has to reach Hartford in 22 hours. What's on it? Do you know anything about nuclear fusion? All right. It's the survival of the human race, Pliskin. Something you don't give a shit about. Pliskin, of course, takes the deal, but... Hawk, understandably not trusting the man, then announces he's going to give him a series of injections under the guise of preventative health care before the mission. It's only after the injection occurs that he tells Snake the truth. Pliskin has been injected with two micro-explosive devices that are now set to explode in the next 22 hours. The detonations will be the size of the head of a pin, traveling through his arteries more than enough to kill him. It can only be deactivated if Pliskin returns. Now fully having no choice, Pliskin is outfitted with weapons and tactical gear, and he flies to the island of Manhattan, covertly landing his glider on top of the World Trade Center. Equipped with a tracker that is supposed to link to a bracelet that is worn by the president, Pliskin follows the signal to a basement of a broken-down theater, where he realizes the president's bracelet has been on the wrist now of an old hobo, as played by the great George Buck Flowers, and radios to Hawk that he fears the president is actually dead. Hawk. I'm right here, Pliskin. All right, get your machine ready. I'm coming out. 18 hours, Pliskin. Listen to me, Hawk. The president is dead. You got that? Somebody's had him for dinner. Pliskin, if you get back in that glider, I'll shoot you down. You climb out, I'll burn you off the wall. You understand that, Pliskin? Little human compassion. Snake makes his way back out into the rubble, where he encounters a woman on the street, as played by Susan Hubley, who tells him he needs to run. They duck into what used to be a chock-full-of-nuts coffee shop, and they watch as a group of, quote, crazies come out, the cannibalistic sewer-dwellers who come up to the surface to hunt rats, other people, anything on the street. They talk briefly, and while she tries to ask Snake to take her with, indeed, back to the mainland, the crazies, having heard the conversation, burst through the floor and drag her screaming below. Snake ends up shooting a few and then dives out the window, going on the run, being chased by a horde of crazies. He is surprised to see a cab roll up at the end of the block, with the driver asking him if he needs a lift. Cabby is played by Borgnine, a good-natured, music-loving driver who decided to stay in New York because it was his home even after they turned into a prison. He tools around the city in an armored yellow cab, helping folks when he can, keeping the riffraff at bay with Molotov cocktails that he throws out of a self-made sunroof. 
Initially distrustful, Snake warms to Cabby as he offers to take him to the Brain to see if he can help him rescue the President from the clutches of the Duke. Where you going, buddy? Snake. You don't want to be walking from the Bowery to 42nd Street at night. Ha, I've been driving a cab here for 30 years, and I'm telling you, you don't walk around here at night. <laughs> yes, sir. It'll kill you and strip you in 10 seconds flat. Usually, I'm not done around here myself, but I wanted to catch that show. This stuff is like gold around here, you know. It's like gold. <laughs> hey, Snake, when'd you get in? I didn't even know they caught you. <laughs> oh, Snake Bliskin in my cab? <laughs> Wait till I tell Eddie. <laughs> hey, hang on, Snake. <laughs> hey, uh, what were you doing back there, Snake? Looking for somebody. Well, why didn't you ask me? Hell, I know everybody in this town. Yes, sir, I've been driving this cab for 30 years, this very same cab. I'm gonna ask you. Now, where's the president? Uh, the Duke got him. Everybody knows the Duke's got him. Well, you don't have to put a gun to my head, I'll tell you. Who's the Duke? The Duke. The Duke of New York, eh, number one? The big man, that's who. That's real good. I want to meet this Duke. You can't meet the Duke, are you crazy? Nobody gets to meet the Duke. You meet him once and then you're dead. Snake gets to meet the brain, as well as his, quote, main squeeze, Maggie, as played by Harry Dean Stanton and Adrian Barbo, respectively. And it's then that he flashes with anger. You see, Harold the Brain Hellman is a former partner of Snake's who abandoned him on a job. Brain has survived in the city by using his intellect to help refined, found sources of oil, and then turn them into gas, which allows the Duke to run generators to power his base of operations out of Grand Central Terminal, also to fuel a small fleet of cars under his control. In return, the Duke allows Brain a position of autonomy and authority, and has gifted him Maggie. Brain fills Snake in on the Duke's plans, which include utilizing a map that Brain has made of the heavily mined Queensboro Bridge, and his ultimate goal to take a fleet of cars with the President in tow and literally just drive their way to freedom, holding the leader as a bargaining chip to get past security. Brain reluctantly agrees to help Snake infiltrate the Duke's lair. Snake does make it there and kills a few guards on his way in, and when he gets to where he thinks the president is being held, he's caught by the Duke's men. For entertainment purposes, Snake is thrown into a makeshift boxing ring and given a garbage can lid to use as a shield, as well as a baseball bat that has nails pushed through, and forced to fight gladiatorial style against a hulking brute that just goes by the name of Slag, as played by professional wrestler Ox Baker. While the Duke and his men are distracted by the fight, Brain and Maggie head back behind the scenes and kill Romeo and run off with the president. Snake kills Slag in the ring, and in the aftermath of craziness going on in the fight, he escapes and ends up meeting up with the trio. Pursued by the forces of the Duke, the four head to the World Trade Center, where they discover to their horror that the crazies have pushed the Gullfire off of the roof destroying it. Cabby shows up and the five of them race across the city to the Queensboro Bridge, hoping that Brain has indeed accurately mapped all of the mine locations. The president protests that he still needs the precious tape, but Cabby laughs and reveals that he has it. Three mines right here, then you go three yards, and then there's three more. They come in groups of three. Where's the tape, Brain? Tape. Huh? What tape? Where is it? It's tape from the briefcase. Oh, that tape. Here it is. You, you, you traded Romero your hat? No. <laughs> see, see. The discovery of the tritium creates only one one millionth of the biological damage of iodine one. Here, give me that tape. Not just yet. Yeah. 
The Duke and his men give chase in his ostentatious Cadillac Fleetwood, shooting at the cab while trying to drive the same path to avoid the mines. Soon it's only the Duke remaining in said chase, and it looks like our heroes are indeed going to make it. That is, until Cabby veers a little bit too far over and detonates a mine. Cabby is killed, and they are forced to try to outrun the Duke and navigate the last few hundred yards on foot. Brain himself sets off a mine and is mortally wounded. Maggie, crushed, and despite of all of Snake's urging to come with them still, she refuses, staying with Brain's body, making a final stand against the Duke with Snake's revolver. She damages his vehicle, but the Duke still runs her down and kills her with his car. Snake and the President make it to the wall, and as New York security forces lower ropes down to extract them, the Duke arrives and shoots the guards at the top of the wall with Snake's gun. As he levels the weapon to kill Pliskin, shots suddenly ring out. President Harker, grabbing a dead guard's weapon, kills the Duke in a barrage of gunfire, and Snake is helped up the rope to freedom. But it's only after he delivers the tape, that's when Hawk's medical forces come in and neutralize the implanted explosives moments before they detonate. Snake makes his way over to the President, who is in the process of being cleaned up and having makeup put on him, to go on camera to speak to members of the Peace Summit and interrupts his time to ask him a simple question. Hold it. Oh, it's all right. I, uh, I want to thank you. Anything you want, you, you just name it. Just a moment of your time. Three minutes, sir. Uh, yes? We did get you out. A lot of people died in the process. I just wondered how you felt about it. Well, I... <clears throat> I want to thank them. Uh, this nation appreciates their sacrifice. Uh, look, um, uh, I'm on the air and... Two and a half minutes. Yes, sir. The snake is disgusted and walks off. Hawk runs up to him and tells him personally how impressed he is and offers Snake a position as his new right-hand man. But Snake just gives him a cold look and continues to walk off into the night. Hawk lets him go and returns to the staging area, where the president is about to go live and address the summit in an effort to end the constant fighting. You're on camera, Mr. President. Good evening. Although I shall not be present at this uh, historic summit meeting, I present this in the hope that our great nations may learn to live in peace. Walking in the dark, far from the scene, Pliskin is seen smiling and slowly pulling out and shredding the magnetic tape as the credits begin to roll. This movie is awesome. So where to begin? First and foremost, I would like to once again express my appreciation of Donald Pleasance. He was personally worried when he took this role about just being a British man and having an accent 
and he was trying to convince Carpenter to include something that would explain why he sounded like he did. And he pitched a whole backstory that like the United States and the UK reintegrated into one nation again during these crazy times of like World War III. And Carpenter liked it, but he just couldn't figure out a way to fit it into the story, so he just left everything as it is. Which I personally think gives the film a unique charm. Still, Plessence himself, he's amazing here, particularly when we see him first, you know, chained up after he's been captured, and he's being tortured by the Duke. He's sweaty, he's broken, and he is out of his mind, frightened, as the Duke is attempting to shoot the chains that hold the briefcase to Harker's wrist. I want that diagram, Brian. Uh, it's at my place, Duke. Duke, that Pliskin said something about a time limit. What time limit? On him. That's a lot of crap. What did I teach you? You are Duke of New York. You're a hey number one. I can't hear you. You are the Duke of New York. You're a hey number one. Give me the diagram. Duke, don't kill Pliskin. We need him. Get moving, brain. He is marvelous here. And again, when compared to just how chill Hayes is with that cold delivery, it's made all the more effective. Pleasance is losing it. When we were in high school, my brother, our friends, and myself, we would all take to shouting at each other at weird random times, just turning and going, You are the Duke of New York! You are A number one! And you would wonder why I had to keep the ladies at bay the way I did. So something else that I kind of love about this, just because it's so subtle, I like the quiet complexity of the relationship between Brain and Maggie. Everyone's initially very dismissive of Maggie. She's often referred to as just being Brain's gal or Brain squeeze. You know, she was gifted to Brain by the Duke to quote-unquote keep him happy so he'll continue to make gas and maintain the generators for the Duke. This is not, though, a Chattel situation. Brain does not act as if he has any authority over Maggie. He listens to her when she has concerns, he follows her lead more often than not, and he worries greatly about her when trouble comes. Maggie, in turn, manages Brain. She screens people from getting access to him, she takes care of him in the background, and she's always seen quietly either pulling a gun or a knife if she feels anyone means to harm him. It's a real relationship. It's two people who are in a situation that is obviously spinning very, very, very hard out of control and who need and both complement each other. Harry Dean Stanton and Adrian Barbeau play it off so well, and in doing so, it just makes it all the more tragic when Brain dies and Maggie is left so broken and refuses to leave his side. So, interestingly, this film has an entire prologue that was indeed filmed that showed how Snake Plissken wound up being arrested and sent to New York in the first place. Plissken and his accomplice, Bill Taylor, as played by Joe Unger, rob a Federal Reserve and make an escape by way of high-speed subway. Snake has a chance to make it, but ends up going back to help Taylor, who winds up being shot in the back by security forces. Snake is all visibly upset at the loss of his friend, and he himself winds up captured by the police. Now, this whole sequence ended up being excised by Carpenter himself for two reasons. First, the film does move a little faster without it. Just starting at the point where Pliskin has arrived at the processing center at Liberty Island really sets the story in motion. Second, and I think actually more important, Carpenter wanted to make Snake more mysterious and tough. So, right at the beginning of the movie, by showing that he cares about people, that, you know, he has these partners and he's not going to leave them, 
at the onset, that leaves you no doubt that he's going to go back and help all of the people he's working with, Cabby, Brian, Maggie, even the president. You take that beginning scene away, and now you actually aren't sure this entire film if you can trust Pliskin to get these people actually off of the island. It's not a bad scene, but after seeing it, I do think Carpenter was right in his decision to actually exclude it from the final cut of the film. So, how was this film received? Well, Escape from New York hit theaters on July 10th, 1981, and it was a commercial and critical success, bringing in $25 million against a $6 million budget. Critics pointed out that, yeah, the story's kind of silly, but at its core, this is a B-movie pretending to be an A-list film, and at the same time, it's not taking itself too seriously, so it allows audiences to have a lot of fun. As of this date, it's sitting currently at 85% with the critics and 77% with the audience on Rotten Tomatoes. And I have to tell you, that floors me. Seriously, people? This movie is tits. What is your problem? You want to know how important this film is? Just look at its legacy. First and foremost, you have a sequel that came out 16 years later. That would be 1996's Escape from L.A., which saw the return of the character having to once again extract himself from a hostile environment set in an even more dystopic future. The film had some problems, and it itself was not commercially viable at the box office. But I will say, while it is not my favorite Carpenter-Russell team-up, as a popcorn movie goes, Escape from L.A. is a hell of a lot of fun. Had it done well, Carpenter would have had a third film outing for Pliskin in mind, expanding on the notion that he would now have to get off the planet for the next adventure, you know, because that would be the only way it would be bigger and better. Several treatments were worked on, but again, with L.A. being a disappointment, he ended up retooling the script he had originally made for the next Escape film, and he moved it to Mars and managed to get the script beaten into shape, and that was what would become 2001's The Ghost of Mars. Not very good, but hey, he tried. As a character, Pliskin is Russell doing his own version of a Clint Eastwood impression. Literally, the man with no name who's going to tell you exactly what his name is. This futuristic tough guy motif with an eye patch inspired a wide variety of knockoffs, both for films, comics, and video games. The Italian filmmakers in particular honed in on this type of story and made several mockbusters in an attempt to cash in on the popularity of Escape from New York, including the legendary 2019 After the Fall of New York, which is absolutely a future episode in its own right. But that wasn't even enough. 1990, The Bronx Warriors, The New Barbarians, and Escape from the Bronx were all cranked out in very short order with mixed results. Pliskin remains popular, as one cannot look at the Metal Gear video game franchise without seeing the effect on the lead character of Solid Snake, who now wears a very stylized eye patch and often uses the surname Pliskin on various cover names. Carpenter had four brief runs of printing further stories of the character in limited comic series that he had developed, the first of which was a Marvel one-shot printing, The Adventures of Snake Plissken, that came out in 1997, that was attempting to directly explain the events between the two films. Later, in 2003, CrossGen Publications had an actual four-part limited series entitled The Snake Plissken Chronicles, which filled in even more background on the character. In 2014, Boom Studios released their version of Escape from New York as a full-length comic, and then later printed a crossover miniseries that had two Kurt Russell characters, both Snake Plissken and Jack Burton from Big Trouble in Little China, teaming up in a 2016 story. A remake of Escape from New York has been in discussion for years, and by years I mean over a decade. Various people have expressed taking over and helming a fresh new take 
on bringing Snake Plissken back to the big screen. And with every announcement, there is always speculation on who will play the lead, and then the internet goes nuts and argues for or against this hypothetical casting of a thing that doesn't even exist yet. Gerard Butler, for the longest time, was the last person I had heard anything about, and more recently, the current rumor is that Russell's own son Wyatt would step into the role. Like all things, I'll believe it when I see it. Until then, the current word on the street is Robert Rodriguez is still jonesing to direct an updated version of this film. And of course, with Carpenter's blessing and input, we are all in a holding pattern of rewrites and wait and sees. Hey, if they do make it, meh, eh, that's fine. But this is always going to be the version that I think of as mine, the original. If they don't get this made, that's fine by me. It doesn't need to be remade. It's fine the way it is. The version of Escape from New York screened here at the LSCE was the 2003 MGM Special Edition DVD release, which was a solid choice for back in the day. You got two discs, lots of features, including deleted opening scenes, interviews, makings of, not bad at all. It's since gone out of print though, but if you are so inclined, small Z shops online still do carry it and will charge folks about $49.99 a pop for them. Or if you're still jonesing to have a DVD copy, you can find a bare bones edition that is still in circulation for about $18.99. But I would ask you, why would you do that? Especially when the good folks at Shout Factory have released a beautiful cleaned up version of this film on Blu-ray back in 2017. Loaded with features, looking slick, and it's all available for the easy on the wallet price of $14.99. Now remember folks, we don't get anything here for suggesting that you make a purchase anywhere. We just think it's important, these days especially, to continue to support physical media. and. These fine companies that own the print rights to the films we love will continue to keep releasing the content that we all want. And at the end of the day, isn't that what really matters? Besides, this film is great, and it's a must-see for anyone who claims to be a fan of both John Carpenter and or Kurt Russell. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you for joining us. If you like us, please follow us on our Facebook page at The Linden Street Cinema Experience and recommend us to friends. We're also on Instagram at LSCE underscore podcast, or you can follow us on Twitter at LSCEP. Please follow or subscribe to us on the podcast platform of your choice. If you're an Apple Podcast user, please, we would greatly appreciate a five-star and a review from you. We're also featured on Podchaser. That's a site for podcasters and listeners alike, so please check us out there. And if you would feel so inclined, give us a like and a review. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If you would like to have even a more personal interaction or wish to contribute a segment to the sidecar, please send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, take care out there, and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy, everybody. <laughs>